The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between biblical theology, which is largely what we were doing in Old Testament survey, and systematic theology, which is what we'll be doing with ecclesiology. What is the difference? How... Can somebody define biblical theology for me? Well, I'll be honest. Okay. <laughs> like, as you go through the scriptures in order, you start to understand theology, the study of God, and the study of different points of theology versus the topical treatment of something. Very good explanation. What Denise is saying is, in biblical theology, you're going through the scriptures in the order of the progress of revelation, basically in the order that God gave the revelation, and... I favor that because, one, you cover everything when you do that, and you cover it within the context in which it was given. You always have the control of context, which is really important. I'm not completely dissing systematic theology, but what systematic theology does is take all the given scriptures on a particular topic and study that topic that way. And you can do that, and, and it's very beneficial, but you also have a danger of taking something out of context when you go that route. So ecclesiology is one of ten branches of systematic theology. I want us to see if we can name all of those. All right? Ecclesiology is the doctrine of what? The church. So let's. it's helpful to me to kind of group these in a certain way, but I'm going to see how, how well or how much you guys already know about this. Let's see if we can list off the ten uh, branches of systematic theology in any particular order. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. salvation. We've said ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. Soteriology? So all of these names are based with a Greek word and ology, which is basically knowledge of or science of, yeah. Eschatology is the doctrine of what? End times, last things. That's what eschatos means. What's number four? Theology proper. Who said that? Good. So it's helpful to me just to remember these ten things and to kind of do them in the order of theology proper is the most basic uh, theology of God himself, his attributes, and then if you think of him being a triune God, what would be the next systematic theology? Christology is the doctrine of Christ. And then pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So I think we're up to six if I've counted correctly. How do we know? Pneumatology? Pneuma? Uh, yeah, in English it's P-N-E-U-M-A. Uh-huh. How do we know anything about God? The Bible. And so bibliology is a systematic theology. That's seven. We talked about salvation. What do we say from? Harmartiology is the doctrine of sin. Anthropology is the doctrine of man. So <clears throat> when we had systematic theology in seminary, course we did theology proper christology pneumatology but then we had a class that was called man sin and salvation and that kind of follows in logical order right god creates man he falls into sin 
and he has a need for salvation. So uh, we still have at least one left. I quit counting on my fingers, so I lost count. But I, I think there's only one that we've left out. What? And it's probably the one that gets the least amount of treatment. Angelology. Good. Angelology. It's the doctrine of angels. Both fallen and unfallen. Theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, bibliology, anthropology, harmatiology, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and angelology. And we're just going to be doing, uh, we will do eschatology in the spring. Well, that's my plan right now. I'll give you a chance to forget what we've covered already uh, over the last several months in Old Testament survey, and then we'll come back to it. So this is a quote from a guy named R.C. Trench. You may have ever heard of him. He was a uh, Irish Anglican archbishop. He was a poet and a great student, not, well, of the scriptures, but of words, words themselves. Lived in the 19th century, 1807 to 1886. He wrote a very famous book, may still be in print, but certainly one that's on the shelves of many ministers called Synonyms of the New Testament. And a big part of what he does and what this quote is going to reflect is the way that words change, their meanings change through time in any language, right? I would encourage you to go home, when you go home today, Google the word nice, N-I-C-E. See how, what it used to mean and what it means now, and it's very different. But that's a natural function of language. Words change their meaning over time. And the word for church very much falls in that category. And that's what this quote is about. <clears throat> there are words whose history it is particularly or peculiarly interesting to watch as they obtain a deeper meaning and receive a new consecration in the Christian church. Words which the church did not invent but has assumed into its service and employed in a far loftier sense than any to which the world has ever put them before. The very word by which the church is named is itself an example. A more illustrious one could scarcely be found of this progressive ennobling of a word. For we have ekklesia, that's the Greek word for church, in three distinct stages of meaning. The heathen, that is, apart from any religious connotation, the Jewish, and the Christian. We're going to kind of trace the meaning of that word. First, let's look at the English and Greek words for church. The English word for church is derived from the Greek, kuriakon. Now, when you see that word and you're thinking in terms of Greek, <clears throat> Abby, I'm, I'm looking at you as I say this. What is, what, <laughs> what is the, what's kind of the fundamental word that you see in there or that might bring to mind? Curios. And what does curios mean? Lord. So this is an adjectival form of curios, and it means belonging to the Lord. And this word, this Greek word, occurs twice in the New Testament. One with reference to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20, and the other to the Lord's Day, which I believe he's talking to about the Sabbath there. Uh, Revelation 1, I'm sorry, not the Sabbath, Sunday, the first day of the week. That's a, a day that came to be known as the Lord's Day pretty early in church history. I think all the way back to the book of Revelation with the Apostle John. So that's where the, 
And I, I, you know, I know it's a hard curiacon in the English and and ch ch church in church in the English, curiacon in Greek, but that's where it comes from. The Greek word ekklesia is a compound form made up of two words. This is very common in Greek to have a preposition first and another word after it. Ek is the preposition out, and kaleo is a verb meaning I call or I summon. And the compound then is a, the noun, is a called out assembly. Now, that sounds really good for the church because, and yes, that is what we are. But it didn't start out specifically with the meaning that it came to mean for the church. What you want to think of here whoa, is a, like a town crier. Somebody that rides into town on the horse ringing his bell, say, hear ye, hear ye. I've got the latest news. Everybody come up into the square and hear it. That's what an ecclesia originally meant. Eventually, the idea of summoning was lost, and the word came to mean simply assembly. I don't know how that extra ecclesia got in there. There was no special religious significance for the word before the time of the New Testament. Indeed, even within the New Testament, there's times where the word ecclesia means something very different than church. And one of those times is in Acts 19, verse 30, when it's referring to an angry mob. And I want to read that for you. Acts 19, beginning in verse 28. This takes place in Ephesus, where Ar Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt, was worshipped. And you remember... There was concern that Paul's gospel preaching was cutting into the business, particularly of making idols or shrines to Artemis. And so the Ephesians, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the ecclesia, not talking about going into the church there, he's talking about going into this where this angry mob had formed up and he wanted to go in there and preach the gospel, the disciples would not let him, obviously for his own safety. So let's look a little more. That's one case of ecclesia in the New Testament. <clears throat> let's look at some more uses. There are non-technical uses, Acts 7.38 being one of them. I'm going to read verses 37 and 38. And this is in the context of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. He says, This is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who is in the congregation. The ecclesia is the Greek term used there. What's the meaning in this context? What congregation? Is he talking about a church here? No, it's a congregation of Jewish people. Exactly. It's a congregation of Jewish people in the wilderness. It's the people of the nation of Israel as they move through the wilderness. And it's very common in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for ecclesia to translate congregation. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he's, he received living oracles to pass on to you. 
Here's another one. Hebrews 2.12, which is actually citing Psalm 22.22. Ecclesia is used to translate the Hebrew word kahal. Let me read that. Uh, again, I'm going to start to give you some context. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 10. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Again, if you're thinking back to Psalm 22, it's talking about the congregation of Jewish believers in Yahweh. Uh, so again, kahal being a word for congregation in Hebrew that's translated by the Greek term ekklesia. We looked at the one in Acts 19 already. There's actually three occurrences of that term in Acts 19, 32 through 41. All of them refer to that same assembly that we looked at in 1930. Some other sub-technical usages, and when I say technical, I don't mean technical in the sense of scientific or overly academic. Technical in the sense of the way the term is going to become when it's applied to the church in particular. It has a, a technical usage in, the sen in that sense. I don't know if I'm saying that clearly. There's different words, away, different ways a word can be used, but sometimes it comes to have, like when you hear the word church today, you only think of one thing, basically. And that's the way, that's where this one is headed. But let's listen to some way the, uh, the term is qualified in the earliest epistles. So again, the word is changing meaning over time. So that even in the earliest epistles, it doesn't have quite the same meaning as it will eventually. I'm going to read these three, Galatians 1-2, 1 Thessalonians 1-1, and 2-14, 2 Thessalonians 1-1. Right away you see that at least three of these verses are the opening of letters. But listen to what the common uh, characteristic is amongst these passages. Galatians 1-2, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches plural form of ecclesia of Galatia. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 1, 4. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4. Therefore we ourselves speak proud of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. What's common about all four of those? They're congregations of Christian followers. Okay. Followers. And how do we know that? And particularly in these passages. Exactly. Two of them say the churches of God. And what are the, what are the other ones? They're, they're assemblies in a particular location, 
right? So it's the church of the Thessalonians or the churches of Galatia. So all that to say is that early on, they had to be specified that way to know what kind of assembly people were talking about because the term could be used in other ways, as we've already seen. So the earliest epistles, the use is characterized by extensive use of modifying phrases that are not found in later epistles. And then we come to have this technical uses. The term eventually becomes distinctive of a Christian assembly, spiritually united in Christ. Most of the New Testament usages have this meaning of a local autonomous assembly of believers. All right. So we've established how the word changed. We've established that over time it eventually became predominantly known as a local assembly of believers, Christian believers. But there are, here's an example of one that's not a local assembly of believers. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How's the term being used there? Universal church, the whole church. Now, the New Testament doesn't contemplate membership in the universal church apart from being a member of a local church. Does that make sense? You can't say, well, yeah, I'm a believer. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I believe in the gospel. I just don't go to church. I don't, I don't really see the need to do that. I'm a disciple. I'm not part of a local church. That is a uh, dichotomy that you won't find in the New Testament. I raise that example in particular because there are mission agencies that say, you know, Christ never called us to go and establish a church. He called us to make disciples, and that's what we do. We don't, we're not really concerned about churches. We're concerned about disciples. Uh, that's not the way it works. No. Christ doesn't, he did indeed in the Great Commission call us to make disciples. But as we continue to read the word of God, we know that the way that that is done is through local assemblies with leadership, churches. Paul very much was a church planner. So we don't pit those two things against each other. Of the 13 times that ecclesia occurs in Ephesians and Colossians, and again, these are a little bit later epistles, only two employ the technical usage of a local church. Um, here's another example of that. In Colossians 4, verse 14, this is the closing of that letter. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. That's a local assembly in that lady's house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, another local assembly. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. The other 11 occurrences are always singular and always with the article and refer to the universal group of believers in Christ. So the universal church is comprised of local assembly of believers. But, you know, just as we meet here on the first day of the week and, and local assemblies all over this country, all over the world meet, I know we're in different time zones and we start at different times, 
But we're all part of the universal church. It's just organized into local assemblies. What about ecclesia in the Gospels? <clears throat> there are three occurrences of ecclesia in the Gospels. They're all three in Matthew's Gospel. Two of them occur in the same verse. Before we read those, uh, anybody tell me what the occurrence of the church is in Matthew 16, 18? Yes. What, what is the context? Exactly. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So it's very significant. This is what Christ had been leading the twelve to, his whole ministry really, was for them to come to a full conviction that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And Peter makes that confession at a point maybe two and a half years into Jesus' ministry. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. So when they hear the term church there, what are they thinking? Uh, okay, a following I think is really close. What did we say the original meaning of the word is? The most basic meaning of the word. Okay, but at this point I would just say assembly. Assembly of people that are willing to follow Christ. It's going to take a lot more revelation, especially the revelation that comes through the Apostle Paul, for them to understand, hey, this is very different from Israel. This is Jew and Gentile in one body, not under the law, that have what they have by virtue of being in Christ. So, you know, it's a very important point to us as dispensationalists first to say, the church is not in the Old Testament. That's all about Israel. It's about the nations, too, coming to know the God of Israel through Israel as a witness nation. But it's not Jew and Gentile on equal footing in one assembly. You don't see that. You could join the house of Israel as a Gentile, as a proselyte, but you didn't have all the same advantages. You weren't of exactly the same privilege as somebody who was a descendant of Abraham, but you could be part of them and worship their God. That's not what the church is. The church is Jew and Gentile in one body with no distinction, equal privilege, and again, not under the law of Moses, but in Christ. All right, so that's Matthew 16, 18. What about the two in Matthew 18, 17? You don't have to quote the verse, but just what, what's the context there? It's discipline. Church discipline, well, I call it church discipline. It's, you know, this series of steps. If you have a brother that sins against you, how you're to be restored to that brother. First, you go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If they refuse to listen to you, you take two or three witnesses with you. If, they ref if, you refuse, if he refuses to listen to all of you, you tell it to the assembly. And again, I don't think they would have understood church the way that we do now, Although we practice the same procedure of church discipline. Um, and, it, you know, as Christ says it, certainly he knows what it's going to be down the road. But they're just thinking of an assembly, I would argue, largely of Jewish followers of Christ. 
people of the Jewish nation that did believe that Christ was the Messiah. And, of course, they were very few in number um, by the time that Pentecost comes. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Those are the only three occurrences of church in the Gospels. And that's why, uh, you know, when you read the Gospels, you're really still reading under an Old Testament economy. When is that going to change? What is it? Well, it's also the time at which the church is born. Pentecost. It's with the coming of the Spirit. Obviously, Christ had taught the twelve that the Spirit was going to come when he departed. He was going to be a helper. He was going to reveal truth to them. He didn't teach them about the church at that point. And I think you can make a strong argument that when Peter stands up at Pentecost and says, this is that which Joel says, he thought that this was the coming of the Spirit that was going to restore the nation of Israel. And after all, that's what Joel 2 is talking about. And, you know, it's the coming day of the Lord. It's going to take some time as you work through the book of Acts to understand that, hey, this was the start of something new. And now Jews and Gentiles are both in this one body called the church, the body of Christ. And in the book of Acts, they both experience the same phenomenon of speaking in tongues. That's how you know that they're part of the same body. But it's going to take more revelation to really fill out what the church is. And that's what Paul does in his letters, especially in Ephesians, Colossians 2. He describes how the church was a mystery. That is, it wasn't known before. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. We've already seen it wasn't revealed in the Gospels. There's hints there. You know, Christ talked about having followers uh, that were not of this fold. But as far as the, the heart of what the church is, is Jew and Gentile in one body, uh, that's going to take further revelation, most of it coming through Paul. From the standpoint of the hearers, the term here has not yet reached the technical meaning it will later have. Here it just means assembly. As I said, more revelation will be needed, especially that given through Paul to fully understand the character of this assembly. So we're going to, we have Paul's letters now. Uh, I think, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to go through that exercise is when you read in Matthew's gospel and you read church, you need to think about how they would have understood it at that point. It's not the same as the way we understand it today. So let's just talk about the nature of the church a little bit. First, it's a divine assembly. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So that tells you what kind of assembly it is and where it is. To those who have been sanctified in Christ, in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, there's part of the called out assembly, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So they're sanctified believers, uh, those who respond in faith and belief in the gospel. Now, you see there the subtitle of the nature of the church is this material that I'm reading now is taken from the Church and God's Program by Robert Sosi. It's a very good book uh, just to understand the nature of the church. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll send the link out to you. I don't know if it's still in print, but you can definitely still get used copies. Mine is well-worn. The pages are already falling out, but it's, it's worth having in your library. 
I know Pat had asked me about what if we need to read anything last week, and you didn't for this week, but I would really encourage you to read this alongside of our working through this class on ecclesiology. This is a quote from Sosi. The church is God's assembly. Its beginning, its history, and its glorious destiny all rest upon the initiative and power of divine grace. David has made this point to us many times. It's not our church, although it's nothing wrong with us saying that. Uh, we go to such and such a church. But this is Christ's church. He's the one that initiates it. He's the one that keeps it. He's the one that controls it, watches over it, uh, adds to its numbers, moves its people to different locations. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. It's a people called forth by God, incorporated into Christ, and indwelt by the Spirit. The church is also a responsible assembly. Acts 2.44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Now, that's not an argument for socialism or communism. It is a reflection of how they felt about one another, how they were willing to part with particularly excess property to meet other needs. What did, where did the church meet initially? Okay, where else? The temple. The temple is where they were <laughs> worshiping, they were used to worshiping this God that had revealed himself through the Old Testament scriptures. So they were uh, meeting house to house and breaking bread together, but they also were gathering together in the temple. That's going to change over time, and especially when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. If the New Testament portrays the church as a people formed by divine initiative, it also pictures that assembly as one responding to the convener. That is, you know, it's not, when we say it's Christ's church and that God is sovereign, it doesn't negate our responsibility to obey and to do what he calls us to do. Both are equally important. Church is also the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. That's a great word picture. Think about your own body. Think about the different parts that make up your body. Think about how they work together to enable you to do all kinds of things. Think about if you lose a body part or if you have one that goes out of commission and what kind of difficulty that causes you. Well, that's the way the church works. Uh, that's why it's such a good analogy. <laughs> Andre can give first-hand testimony to that. Every part needs to be doing its part for the church to function well as a whole body. Every part is gifted in a certain way. And at some point, I want to I do a study on the spiritual gifts, especially as laid out in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's where this verse is drawn from. And that's uh, just a really important thing for us to as a church. Now, it's not so important that you nail down exactly what your spiritual gift is. It's not so important. Well, I think a lot of times it's a combination of giftings. But what is as important is that you serve and exercise your gifts. And I think over time, your gifts become more clear as to what they are. You know, everybody has one. No member is unimportant, and that's a big part of what Paul's talking about, 1 Corinthians 12, just as no member of your body is unimportant. Some get more prominence than others in your physical body, but all members are important for the body to function as it should. 
Apostle Paul's favorite description of the church is the metaphor of the head, which is Christ, and the body. Christ is the head of the body, which is his church. This analogy expresses the unity, diversity, and mutual co cooperation that make up the church. Again, that's why it's such a great analogy to the human body. The human body is a great analogy to the body of Christ because of the very different nature of each one of our body parts, the way that each one is one body, they all work together in one body, and the way that they all work together to and cooperate together to get things done. The church is also called the temple of God. Now, it's not a building like the Old Testament temples were. What, what is it that makes the church the temple of God? Say it loud. Spirit, the indwelling spirit of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you're no longer strangers and alien, aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, now he's comparing the church to a building, being fed together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> Church is described as a temple building with each member a living stone and the whole built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. The temple is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now we talked about uh, the fact that early in church history, when the church first came into being, the way that you knew that the Spirit had come upon a group of believers was how? They spoke in tongues. That was the foundation of the church. It was to set it apart from the nation of Israel. But just as in a house you, or a building, you only lay a foundation one time. Christ and the apostles were unique in that the apostles were the foundation of the church. And Christ was the cornerstone of that foundation. We don't have apostles anymore. We don't have tongue speaking anymore. But the church is continuing to be built on that foundation uh, through other gifts they're spelled out in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places and God will continue to build that building until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and the church is taken out of the world <clears throat> church is also called a priesthood just like the nation of Israel was called a kingdom of priests and a holy, pimple, holy people they they represented the true God in the world. That's what a priest does. The fact that there's language that is similar, uh, you know, Israel's called a priesthood, we're called a priesthood, doesn't equate the two bodies. There is similarity of role, but very distinct difference in essence. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, And coming to him, that is to Christ, is to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our own bodies are spiritual sacrifices to God. We don't offer animal sacrifices the way they did in the Old Testament, but we offer our, 
our lives as spiritual sacrifices to God and our service to him as sacrifices in that way. As Israel was formed by God to be a priestly nation, so now, following her setting aside during this age, and that's important, Israel has been temporarily hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes into the church. Not abolished, not replaced, but temporarily set aside, the church now functions as God's mediatorial people in this present age. And once the church is taken out of the world, God's plan with Israel kicks back in, if you will. And that's what we see in the day of the Lord and the eschatological passages that we've already looked at. Church is also also called the bride of Christ. And uh, I know that you're familiar with this passage, but human marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. And I want us to read through it again just to refresh ourselves on this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And Christ is doing that to every one of us who's a member of his body, the church. Not just everyone in this local assembly, but local assemblies throughout this country and throughout the world. Christ is sanctifying us through time, both individually and as a body, that he might present the church to the Father. So husbands also ought, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. This cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So very close connection between human marriage and Christ's relationship with his, with his bride, the church. As human marriage involves the intimacy of oneness, so members of the church are united to Christ as members of his body. Okay, just two more metaphors for the church, particularly as God's people, both of these have their background in the Old Testament. Anybody want to take a guess as to what they are? Two other metaphors for the church. We want to think. Both of these come from, well, I was going to say they, they do both come or have examples in the Gospels, but they have examples, at least one of them does in the epistles as well. Flock is one of them. Very good. What's the other one? Okay, we talked about building already, yeah. But John 15, vine and branches. So both of those had reference to Israel with Israel in the Old Testament, but they also have reference to believers, New Testament believers. John 10, 16, this is this very famous discourse on the Good Shepherd. 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. That is, the flock that is already God's, the nation of Israel, and particularly those that embrace the Messiah, and these additional sheep, not of this fold, would be Gentile believers. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Church is God's people in the New, as in the Old Testament, is the flock of God. 1 Peter 5.2 Shepherd the flock of God among you, Peter says, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Something new is added here. This is Christ's flock as well in New Testament believers. Vine and the branches, John 15, I'm going to start in verse 1. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Who was the vine in the Old Testament? God. The father was the vine. No, Israel. Israel was the vine. God was kind of the caretaker of the vine, right? And now Christ is saying, I am the true vine. Christ, of course, being the ultimate Israelite. Where Israel failed, he has succeeded. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Again, really beautiful word picture of the way that we bear spiritual fruit, right? We abide in Christ. We... Uh, have his spirit dwelling in us, but we also put ourselves in his word so that we know him and we know what he wants and we obey, obey his commands. That's really what abiding is. Christ again says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In the Old Testament, repeatedly, Israel is symbolized by a vine which God has planted but it has failed to bear the desired fruit. You even have that Christ reflecting back on that truth in the Gospels. Against this failure, the Old Testament vine, Jesus comes as the true vine, who does bring forth fruit through the branches abiding in him, namely his disciples of the New Testament church. All right, that's all I have for this morning. It's really just an introduction to ecclesiology. We'll be looking at different topics over the course of the next several weeks. Again, I would encourage you to get this. I'll send you the link on Amazon. Uh, you can get a used copy very inexpensively. The Church and God's Program by Robert Sosi. And next time we'll look at the inauguration of the church. Tonight we will have our class on finances. Matt will teach that at 6 o'clock. You can either be here in person or... David, that one will be telecast through WhatsApp. Is that right? You can you can watch remotely through WhatsApp. Are there any questions about anything that we covered this morning? Um, is, the, is the name Ecclesiastes related to that in any way? Yes. This week, so that's why I was curious. It is. So, again, that would be a Greek term, uh, the... Koheleth is the name of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, but he would summon his pupils to instruct them. So it, it, there's, the connection is there. It's the idea of 
teaching an assembly, and that's what Koheleth is really doing. He's, he's teaching an assembly and teaching them wisdom. I think, I want to say there's a Latin connection too there. You probably know about this. Well, Ecclesiasticus. I know ecclesiastical in English, you know, is connected to church service, yeah. But I was thinking ecclesiasticus for the Latin term. I don't know exactly what that one is. I'd have to go back and look at that one. It means church. Okay. Yeah, I think the, I think the connection there is the assembly and his being a teacher of the assembly, Kohela. Any other questions? All right. Thanks for being here this morning. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we're so grateful for the church, for what Christ did to establish it, for even for the fact that it came into being after Israel's rejection of their own Messiah. Their rejection led to great blessing for us because the gospel came directly to us as a result of that and according to your plan. And we have come to know Christ, first and foremost, through your word. We're baptized by the Spirit into the universal church, and then we become part of a local church, a local assembly where Christ is exalted, where your word is taught, where we're encouraged by believers of like precious faith, and we grow, and we see these metaphors that we've looked at briefly this morning of how we grow. And we thank you that you continue, and Christ continues to build his church, both by continuing to call people out through the gospel, and, and that's happening all over the world, but Christ also continues to build his church to maturity, to doctrinal maturity, and to spiritual maturity, and at the right time, he will come for his church. We thank you for the great hope that we have in that, a certain hope that we just wait for it to come to pass. And we thank you for the spirit enabling us to be faithful uh, in our walk with Christ in this present age. So I pray as we go out through our to our respective places this week that you would keep us mindful of these truths and that you would just help us to walk in faithfulness. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.